free ourselves from the conditioning of our past so that we can experience reality as it is, which is actually amazing, right? As opposed to experiencing reality through the thick lenses of the conditioned mind. So we're seeing the world problematically and then having these auto responses. So we want to free ourselves from that, right? And get back to what I believe is true, is normal. Like our normal default response to life is cool. It's like awe. Look at babies. <sighs> Most of the time, you're like, wow. Right? Think about how you were as a kid if you were fortunate enough to ever go to like a, a cool amusement park. Like I remember being a child, I was so blessed. Our family, for several years in a row, we went to Disney World down in Orlando, Florida, right after Christmas. For several days, in between Christmas and New Year's, it was a thing. It was like for several years, and what a—I mean, what a blessing! So I, you know, we—I remember walking, literally. I mean, I vividly remember walking through the turnstiles to go into the Magic Kingdom. Right, that's the nickname for Disney World, the Magic Kingdom. I love that. And as I go through the turnstiles, all there is is woo. <laughs> right, that's all. It wasn't like. Oh, there's too many. We'll never get to them all. <laughs> oh, I don't know where to start. And I was like, "Woo!" Everything's just like, "Yes!" Imagine that as a possibility, right, for us in life. Most of us never learned how to train our brains, which is why most of us needlessly settle, struggle, and worse, suffer. My name is Chris Doris, and I want to make brain training mainstream. This is my series. Tough Talks, conversations on mental toughness. I'm interviewing badasses from all walks of life on what mental toughness means to them and their unique approaches to strengthening their minds. Hey everyone, welcome back to Tough Talks, conversations on mental toughness. I am your host and your guest today for this episode, but before we get into our content, Let's do our usual housekeeping item, our single, our singular uh, housekeeping item. If you're not getting your morning daily dose sent to you via email every morning around 6 or 7 a.m., wherever you are in the world, every day of the year, your uh, mental toughness tips in 30 seconds or less. If you're not getting those, we, we have to address that issue. Uh, also, if you're not getting notifications of my blogs that go out every Tuesday, and if you're not getting notifications of all the new Tough Talks podcast episodes, which come out every other Thursday, then we can fix that, all of that so easily by going to ChristopherDoris.com backslash lists, L-I-S-T-S. Name, email, click, and the goods are yours. So, uh... Once before, I have done, and we've got at this point, I think 105 or so episodes of the podcast, and I've only once prior to this done a solo episode where I, I didn't have another guest, and it was because at the time there was, a, there was a certain topic that was timely, and I wanted to open it up, right, because it's relevant to our content. <clears throat> uh, similarly, as timing would have it, I just finished writing... Uh, my next book, which is not published yet. It's not out, so stay tuned. This will be its title, The Book of Mental Toughness Mantras. And I'm, I'm pretty pumped about it. I'm extremely pumped about it because um, the content is incredibly valuable. So uh, let's start by, I'll, I'll explain, you know, if you don't even know what a mantra is, you will in a minute. And we're going to go over th three or four of them. 
today. But before we do, I want to create some context. You know, you can make the argument that mental toughness training is, like, what is that? It's the re- mental toughness. Mental toughness. What's mental toughness? It's the result of the training or the practice such that you are able to respond to all of life with high-grade states. So mental toughness is the result of doing all the work, the amazing, sometimes quite challenging, but invigorating, instantaneously rewarding, inner world fortifying, strengthening work that ultimately results in your ability to respond. Your response-ability is strengthened. You are able to respond mindfully to life in ways that are graceful, intelligent, enthusiastic, creative, masterful. You know, and that's what we're looking for here. That's what we're working towards here, right? Is the ability to respond, to interpret all of life in ways that serve us. To be able to interpret and or respond to all of life in ways that maximize the probability of us being able to feel great and be great, create greatness rapidly with least effort. How about that? Like who, who doesn't wanna sign up for that, right? The ability to respond spontaneously like it's become habitual. Your default response to reality is high grade. Like enthusiasm and, and gratitude, right? Like curiosity at worst, <laughs> right? Awe, inspiration. And these are the high grade states, right? The high vibrational states that activate all forms of intelligence. It just makes us good. So it's like, you know, the better we feel, the better we are. But only, always. And only... Um, everything so how does one you know I tell this story often about my friend my dear friend former coach Steve Hardison the ultimate coach a story that happened actually a year ago to right around now uh, at the time of this recording where he got a flat tire uh, driving back from California to Arizona in the summertime and he was in the middle of the desert, and it was 120 degrees Fahrenheit out. It's pretty hot, and he did not have a spare. So now, now most people would, you know, hear that and go, "Oh God!" In fact, a lot of people do. I tell the story all the time, so I tell it in groups, and I'm watching, and I tell a little bit more dramatically. You know, I put a little inflection in there, like, "Yeah, it's like 120 degrees out," and guess what? You don't have a spare. <laughs> so I make it easy for people to go, "Ah." Oh, <laughs> so, I'm so mean. It's a total damn setup. Because I go, why? so somebody reacts. I go, okay, so check that reaction. Just hold on to that. Okay, that's what that is. What we are looking for. So we can strengthen that. Right? That auto, re- like, did you choose? So a person I was recently, you know, I was giving, doing a workshop for a group of leaders, and, and that's exactly what happened. I'm not making, this is a real deal. So uh, a gentleman responded like, just like that. And I'm like, there you go. So can can we can I address this with you right now? Because it's perfect. And he goes, yeah, yeah. And I go, did you choose that? That response. And he goes, no. <laughs> like, no, you didn't. Let's be, in- can we all just be uh, like super interested in that? 
Let's let's open this up because that that's the deal. You had an auto. Where did it come from? There was an auto response, and the answer is practice. Whatever you practice, you'll get very good at. And we have all been conditioned to practice and develop ex- serious levels of mastery at having a problem with life. Especially when we don't get what we want, like a flat. Like Steve didn't want to get a flat tire in the desert, right? <clears throat> he was on his way home. He'd been away for a week. He wanted to see his wife, Amy, who he's so madly in love with. And, you know, he's excited to get home, to be with her. And and then this event occurs that will lengthen the amount of time and put more time in between him and what he wanted there. So it's an example of what he didn't want. But what happened was Steve got instantaneously enthused when he uh, when he got that flat. So I told them that. <coughs> I was like, so, so you had this auto response. Like, oh, God, that sucks. Didn't choose it. That's a product of having practiced complaining about life. And agreeing, being in agreement with most everybody in, in the world, not everyone, but almost, that a flat tire is a real pain in the ass. Everybody just in agreeing on that. So now we buy it, and it lives in us, and when there's a flat tire, instantaneous response is, God, this sucks. Without going, oh, I have a flat. All right, well, how do I want to respond to that? Now, that doesn't occur, right? Because we've got auto responses from having practiced it. So what we're working towards here, right, with all this mental toughness training, which is why this podcast even exists, it's why Daily Dose exists, right, it's why, I do the, why I've chosen the vocation I've chosen is to free ourselves from the conditioning of our past so that we can experience, experience reality as it is, which is actually just amazing, right, as opposed to experiencing reality through the thick lenses of the conditioned mind, so we're seeing the world problematically and then having these auto-responses. So we want to free ourselves from that, right? And get back to what I believe is true is normal. Like our normal default response to life is cool. It's like awe. Look at babies. <sighs> Most of the time, you're like, wow. Right? Think about how you were as a kid if you were fortunate enough to ever go to like a cool amusement park. Like I remember being a child, I was so blessed. Our family for several years in a row, we went to Disney World down in Orlando, Florida, right after Christmas. For several days, in between Christmas and New Year's, it was a thing. It was like for several years, and what a, I mean, what a blessing. So I, you know, we, I remember walking literally. I mean, I vividly remember walking through the turnstiles to go into the Magic Kingdom. Right, that's the nickname for Disney World, the Magic Kingdom. I love that. And as I go through the turnstiles, all there is is woo. <laughs> right. That's all. It wasn't like. Oh, there's too many. We'll never get to them all. <laughs> oh, I don't know where to start. And I was like, "Woo!" Everything's just like, "Yes!" Imagine that as a possibility, right, for us in life. And with practice, we can get back to that level of response to all of life. One of my favorite teachers in the world, Byron Katie, who has done this work so much that her her response is. In fact, love and enthusiasm to everything, to everything. That's Byron Katie right there. This is her book, Loving What Is. What a beautiful title, isn't it? Loving What Is. What a perfect, perfect title. Loving What Is. That's what we're practicing here. We're practicing getting back to having the ability to exercise our ability, our innate innate ability 
to love what is. Stop having a problem with so much of life. Right? So what's the practice? The practice is is to, to catch yourself in complaint. You know, I, I read a while ago a, a scientific study that said that humans complain on average once every 11 seconds. Let's just say that's true. That's like a lot. Right? And Eckhart Tolle, another great teacher. Eckhart Tolle, he's the author of The Power of Now and A New Earth. Uh, he posed a question in one of those um, what percent of your life, what percentage of your life do you spend in a state of wishing stuff was different? And I don't mean like wishing there wasn't like any like starvation or pollution, you know, or, or human trafficking. I, that's not what, it's like just like, oh man, there's so much traffic. This sucks. The internet connection, can't just, just, you know, shit, I'm out of coffee. <laughs> Pay attention, all right? One of your takeaways from this episode has got to be, if you're not already doing this, or if you did and you've let go of it or forgotten about it, or it maybe it weakened, let's reinstitute this practice, which is to become hypervigilantly conscious of the frequency with which you complain. Complaining is stupid. It deactivates. That's one of the mantras. Complaining makes us stupid, right? It deactivates all forms of intelligence because we're simply having a problem with what is. We are in a state of resistance that does not activate creative genius. So it's not useful. In fact, it's disastrous. It's, um, that's a little bit dramatic, but um, it's unhealthy. Unbelievably popular. And think about how good are you at it? Seriously, how good are you at complaining? How good are you? We're all amazing because we've all practiced the hell out of it. <laughs> Let's stop that. Okay, incredible practice. Start eliminating complaining, really. Start systematically eliminating, reducing, we'll say, okay? Start to systematically reduce the frequency with which you complain. With which, in other words, have practice having a problem with what is. 99% of our complaints happen silently in our minds. They never get articulated into the spoken word. They're just happening inside of us. Like, I mean, I know, I play these games on my phone I play, like, I don't know where my phone is, but it doesn't matter. I, you know, I play these, like, word games, word puzzle games, right? And because it's good for the brain, it's fun. I love puzzles. And I notice when I get stuck, I go, a lot. That's a complaint. That's me having a problem. As opposed to, okay, I got this. I got this. I'm Okay, I'm seeing this. I'm going to get this. This is fun. You know? But that's what I, I, pre- I replaced it. Man. With, oh, this is cool. This is cool. We got this. Yes, good. We got this. That's the practice. Practicing creating a new auto response. Right? So catching yourself when you're in complaint and replacing it. Replacing it with what? Well, you can replace your complaints with anything. Expressions of gratitude are always by default like amazingly available and effective, intelligent. Right? They work. But what we're talking about mantras today. So I use all these mantras. Like this book's going to have 50 of them, maybe even a couple more. But it's the book. Of, it was going to be the book of 50 mental toughness mantras, but there might be more. So it's it's whatever. It's the book of mantras, mental toughness mantras. So we've got all these amazing mantras that over the years, like here's one, right? The problem is the gift. There should be an asterisk right there. Say the problem is the gift. If you'll have it, be. We'll talk about that in a minute. So these mantras, like the definition, so if you don't know what a mantra is, here, here, there's a few definitions. It could be a sound, it could be a word, or it could be a phrase, 
right? But here's some interesting definitions uh, of mantras that I've heard over time. One is, it's a sacred utterance. I'm down with that, right? That's so perfectly accurate as far as I'm concerned. Because every one of these mantras is a sacred utterance. I'm uttering something that's so sacred to me because you know what's having me be powerful. It's having me stop suffering unnecessarily. It's having me be able to experience the magic of life that's always available to us, but I ruin. Notice this narrowly averted F bomb right there. That was for you, Meredith. <laughs> Meredith Bell. He's always telling me to watch my mouth, which is another mantra. We'll get to that later. Actually, we won't get to that one today. But it's a say. It's so safe. These mantras are so sacred because what they do is they make it easy, right? I like. To, I work my ass off at making it easier and easier and easier to be amazing. I work my ass off to make life be easy. I love that paradox, right? I work my ass off every day. I live in a permanent, a perpetual state of self-inquiry. I'm always asking myself, always asking myself questions like. How you feeling now, CD? Could use some love. You want to bump that up a little bit? You know, how's the what? What kind of state are you thinking your way into in this moment? Is it useful? Is it serving you? Do you like it? Do you agree with it? All right. And that's the practice. But then these mantras, these sacred utterances, make that practice a lot easier for me to upgrade. To upgrade my interpretations in the moment of reality. To upgrade the way I'm thinking about reality, and therefore the way I'm feeling, and therefore the way I'm acting, and therefore what I'm creating for myself and others. Another cool definition of mantra that I got from one of my most influential teachers and dearest of friends, Dr. Allison Arnold, or Doc Alley, two-time former guest on uh, Tough Talks here, uh, she taught me that the, the mantra, another cool definition of mantra is um, protector of the mind. How good is that? How good is that? Way to go, Doc Alley. <laughs> protector of the mind. So perfect, right? Because, right? Because when, as we're, we're conditioned to experience reality so problematically, so much, right? So often, that's, uh, that's a, a misuse of the mind. Right? Like one of the mantras is, worry is a misuse of imagination. I don't know if we credit Steve Chandler for that or Buddha. Probably the same thing. <laughs> the godfather of coaching, Steve Chandler. But yeah, protector of the mind. These mantras, that's what they do. They serve to protect, help me protect myself by using my mind in a skillful way. Right? So I say let's take a few moments to, to go through at least a couple mantras. All right, let's go through a few of them that, that, that I use constantly in my coaching and speaking and, and of course, in, in my content creation and, and my writing. So let's, uh, let's start with living above the O-line. Living above the O-line. That's what we want to be doing. We want to be living above the O-line. Now, what does that mean? What's this O-line business? Well, here's a, here's a diagram. <clears throat> okay, that's the O-line right there. <clears throat> now, what is all this? We'll say that this is the range of possible interpretations, the ways that we can interpret. We are always, all day long, we are interpreting reality in one of these three ways. Low grade, neutral, or high grade, right? This sucks. I don't care. This is amazing. And some variation of that. So for simplicity's sake, there's just three ways, like low grade, neutral, high grade. We're doing it all day long. So notice, be aware of that. You are practicing having an opinion on stuff 
all day, <coughs> right? This sucks. This is whatever, or whoo, <coughs> all right, some form of that. So it's cool because like those are our interpretations, right? High grade interpretation, neutral and low grade. So like say tennis in a tennis match, we'll say that Rafael Nadal is playing against Roger Federer, right, in Wimbledon, which is actually going on right now. And uh, we'll say Rafa aces feds, okay? So in that moment, Rafa's pumped. So he's got the high-grade interpretation, right? He's like, yeah, man, <laughs> I was a hater, baby. Feds couldn't even get any racket on that. Get you some. He's pumped. He's got a point. He's pumped. Right? Fed's is a little bitter because he's like, bro, that's no bueno. What the hell is that? And then the umpire sitting in the chair couldn't give a damn. One event, a serve in tennis. That's all that happened is the tennis ball was served. And it was in and blew by the returner. Right? So that's one event. And there are three different people here. There was uh, Feds who lost the point, who's upset. There was Rafa Nadal who served it, got the point, was pumped. And the umpire chair, neutral. Don't give a damn. That's their job, right? The umpire's job is to be totally neutral. So those are our three options, right? Now, that's interesting, right? So this is the range of interpretation, which is kind of cool because the whole thing looks like the letter I, big capital letter I. So it's a range of interpretations. And the O, the neutral, right, which is actually that, that symbol right there is for like the null set. In math, we're going to call that the observation because it's an O. It's the observation line, right? That's the O line. That's what it means, O line. The, the, an observation is a neutral interpretation, right? High grade, low grade, neutral. So that's what an observation is, is a neutral interpretation. Like this is a blue pen. How you doing? You pumped? Mm, nah. You pissed? Mm, no. Is this just a blue pen? Today happens to be a Saturday. We could interpret that one of three ways, right? Woo, it's the weekend. Uh, oh, Saturday, what am I doing? There's a sports on. Why am I doing a podcast? <laughs> and, or there's neutral, which is it's Saturday. Right? So those are our options. Now, you know, I'm not selling this because it's like, uh, let's have more happy thoughts. Let's go to our happy place. It's, that's not my jam. In fact, I think that's kind of stupid. I'm about being amazing, right? I'm about training myself and people to be to, to be the miracles, seriously, that we're designed to be. I've got to get into the math now. I'm not doing it. <laughs> I, ain't, I ain't gonna do it. Could. The math on you, bottom line, you're a miracle. You are an incomprehensible improbability. In other words, a miracle. So you're designed to create miracles, right? And when you know when we don't do that, you know you know when we don't create miracles is when we're living below the O-line. In complaint, having a problem with what is which we are excellent at because we have hmm, what was that? <laughs> practiced it. So what we're doing is practicing now, getting good at catching ourselves when we're below the O line. That I missed a little chunk of it, but the lowest part. So we want to practice our uh, right catching ourselves. Like right now, this very second, this very second, the last several seconds, I just had two catches below the O line. One, when I drew the circle and it wasn't big enough to catch all the bottom, which is the lowest grade interpretations. Then I went to do it again. The pen ran out of ink. My pen ran out of ink. You can kind of see the line, right? The line where it didn't write. In my brain, 
I was like, oh, come on, man, I'm trying to do... Like, this happens in flashes. This happened in, like, milliseconds. I'm like, oh, damn it, man. Come on, you're trying to do... A, a, you know, you're, you're recording this, man. This is not cool. <laughs> we are so good. Mental coach, I am great at complaining, right? And here I am doing the practice. You're watching me do the practice right now. So this takes awareness. Pay attention. You do, look, there's no shortage, okay, of opportunities to catch yourself in complaint. Go get them. Think of them as, think of them as thieves that are robbing you. Blind. Robbing you of joy. Robbing you of being able to experience the moment blissfully. Or peacefully even. But it, it's more than that. These thieves, these complaints, right? They're ro also robbing us of our excellence. They're robbing us of our creative genius. They're robbing us of our ability to create excellence from all circumstance. Let's get a little fired up about that, huh? So this is what we're practicing, right? We're practicing catching ourselves when we're below the O-line. And what we're going to do is we're going to use mantras. Upgrade our interpretations so that we're practicing getting above the O-line. Getting above the O-line. Getting above the O-line. Using all these mantras. Right? So living above the O-line is, is a reminder mantra <clears throat> to use the mantras. So that's why I'm starting with this, right? It's like the ultimate. Living above the O-line. What? Practicing living in high-grade interpretations. Creating high-grade, high-vibrational states so that the creation of excellence is fast and easy. <laughs> All right, yeah, I'm down with that. Yeah, I do that. Use the mantras. So I'm using a mantra to remind me to use the mantras. <laughs> Living above the O-line. How? Use the mantras. Okay. Here's another one of my favorite ones. I referenced this, I think, earlier today. Don't wait to be great. <clears throat> Don't wait to be great. Okay. So I ask people a lot. When does, when does somebody become an expert? It's a tricky question. And I get a lot of answers like, well, you know, according to Malcolm Gladwell um, in the tipping point, uh, it's like after 10,000 repetitions of practice. And I love that. I think there's great validity to that, right? That's the actual like physical or technical mastery, right, <clears throat> of an act. So say like hitting golf balls or playing piano or whatever it is, giving talks, anything in life, right? Getting in the reps, getting in the reps, getting in the reps, right? Uh, including this, getting in the reps of replacing your low-grade interpretations, right? Getting in the reps of replacing them with high-grade interpretations, getting in the reps of get, getting above the O-line, right? I absolutely agree. Getting tens of thousands make mastery easier, but that doesn't mean you're an expert yet. Because there's another thing that needs to happen before anybody ever becomes an expert. Because you could get 100 million reps in and still think of yourself as a scrub. So there's your answer. <clears throat> when does somebody become an expert? When does somebody own their greatness? That's a subtitle of my first book, right? Which I love the subtitle of my first book. Confidently stepping into your own brilliance, right? When, does some, when do you become a genius? When do you become brilliant? When do you become expert? When do you become best in class? When do you become the best in the world at what you do? Yeah, you got to back your shit up. Yes, you need to do the work. Of course. I'm taking that for granted. Yeah, you got to back it up. You got to sharpen your saw. You got to do the practice. 
Yes. And you need to own it. Own it. So the answer, when does someone become an expert? When does someone truly become great? It's when they choose to. That's not, that does not sit well with what we've been taught. Nope. We have been conditioned to wait, to put all kinds of conditions upon, like feeling uh, good, feeling great, right? Like um, we've been conditioned to wait for a certain amount of money in our savings account or in our investments or portfolio, whatever, before we'll feel financially safe, nonetheless successful. Or, or sound or abundant waiting for all kinds of acknowledgement from the outer world like a title or a raise a promotion before you feel like a, like a deserved leader or an expert right waiting to get invited to club because your performance you know it's a sales thing before you feel like you're a badass Waiting for all kinds of things. Again, that's that's the number one mistake that I've observed people in my entire career. The number one mistake I've observed people making in the creation of their desires and the creation of excellence, the creation of their lives on their terms is putting unnecessary time. Waiting. Putting unnecessary time between themselves and greatness and what they want. Right? We've learned to do it. So there's nothing stopping you right now this second from being the best in the world at what you do except your thinking because Muhammad Ali had a great quote on that I didn't plan on referencing it just, I just thought of it right now like, I, whoever knows you, you, you're probably thinking of it already right like which was like you know I talked myself into being the greatest I was the greatest I said I, I was the great like I would I said I was the greatest long before I was the greatest he was speaking his way into his truth. He was thinking his way into his truth. His, his speech was a reflection of his thinking. So think your way into that state. Create the state, don't wait, baby. That's a, that's a, a very close cousin of uh, don't wait to be great. Create the state, don't wait. It's like, create what state? Uh, whatever you damn, please. Right now that we're talking about don't wait to be great. So right now, let's do an exercise and then we'll move on to the next mantra. Right now, do whatever needs to be done in your brain to be the best in the world at what you do. You don't need anybody in the world to acknowledge it. You're not saying it out loud even. You're tweaking your inner world right now. And, you, and all of you have the ability to do it. If you're saying, oh, I can't do that, then stop that nonsense jibber jab. Throw that crap away, that useless language, and do it. Have yourself right now be the best in the world. I'm the best in the world. I am the mental coach. I am no one in the world that does what I do as good as me. I am that. This isn't about being cocky. <clears throat> it's also about not worrying about being cocky. It's about owning your excellence without condition, without apology, without reluctance, without proof. Without waiting for it. Although so many people, I've coached so many incredible people, some of the best in, in the world at what they do, and they have a, an abundance of evidence to support that they're like the best. Uh, but because, and this is why they're working with me, uh, they don't believe it. 
in their brains, they aren't the best. They got all these fans, right? People watch them on TV, watch them play sports on TV, and you know they make millions of dollars and they're you know famous and and they're still wondering, can I hang here? Do I belong? It's true. And their fans would be surprised, like just, like super surprised. Like, really, they think that? So so, don't wait to be great. So right now, do it again. If you haven't done it, do it now. Do whatever you need to do in your mind. Even if it just lasts for three seconds. Seriously, seriously. Be right now, be the best in the world of what you do. Go. If you're having a hard time with that, think of uh, something in your life that it's easy for you to remember being absolutely ridiculously amazing at. Even if it's like checkers. I'm not kidding. Something, anything that you were like amazing at and, and you know you were. Doesn't matter how far back you got to go. But use that experience because that's the situation. That's a set of circumstances that you want to use. You want to leverage it, right? Because that's where you're comfortable owning your excellence. So remember what that felt like. That's a state. You can create that state anytime. State of excellence. State of expertise. State of badassery. Do it again. Right now, choose to create the inner experience of being the best in the world at what you do. Go. Now do that a million freaking times. That's the practice. Okay, let's do one more. You know, there's, um, here's, the, here's the mantra. Visualize perfection. Some good advice. It's <laughs> a, a good instruction right there. We're, you know, we're always visualizing. Visualization or imagery or fantasizing, daydreaming. There's a million you can call it whatever you want. Filling your mind with images. We're doing it all day long. It's a superhuman power. It really is. Because what you think about, you bring about. Where attention goes, energy flows. Thoughts become things. There's all different fun phrases and ways of articulating the superhuman power of imagery. Creating images of, you know, uh, creating, just creating images in the mind. And then, but what's happening here? What's so amazing about the skill, the ability to imagine the future is that when, when, we're, when we're fantasizing, we don't realize that that's what we're doing. We're actually creating the future. We are experiencing the future in advance. Whatever we're thinking about, we're unconsciously acting upon. We're, we're, in, we're unconsciously doing and being thinking doing things that um, significantly increase the probability of that thought becoming real. So, you know, we have been conditioned to spend an enormous amount of time thinking about what could, be go, what could go wrong. What has gone wrong? What's going wrong? And yeah, there can be value. I don't believe in the going wrong interpretation like at all. I just believe things go. They don't go wrong. They go. And you can create from them rapidly if you're masterful in your thinking and your ability to respond to it. But uh, yeah, we've been conditioned uh, to spend enormous amounts of time uh, entertaining what sucked and what sucks and what might suck in a minute. And the, the irony in that, the, the dark irony, is that as a result of that, we're actually creating it. We're actually putting, we're unconsciously creating what we're thinking about, right? So I'll give you an example uh, story. There's like from this great book by Herbert Benson. Herbert Benson, this great guy. Doesn't he look just super friendly and fun? 
Timeless Healing, The Power and Biology of Belief. What a great subtitle. The Power and Biology of Belief. It's all about imagery. Belief. What you believe to be true creates results in images that you're creating in your mind, whether you know it or not. And then those are influencing uh, everything, so including your physical being. So an example is... Uh, he gets a group of kids, apparently in Japan, I've never been in Japan, so, but it's according to this research study, there's a tree in Japan called the lacquer tree. Uh, and, uh, of course, there's a Japanese name for that, but it's a lacquer tree. And the lacquer tree is, like I guess, like poison ivy times 10, or at least people think it is, right? Super poisonous, or it is, but, that, you know, people is like, oh, damn, like, if you just, like, walk or near a lacquer tree, like, oh, I get the rash. So what, what these researchers did was they got together a group of kids, like teenagers, who have all had documented uh, like significant skin rash reactions to contact with the lacquer tree. And they get them in the lab. And they tell them to roll their sleeves up, and then they put their arms out on the, on the table in front of them. And you know, all good research involves bullshitting people. It's deception for effectiveness reasons. And so the, uh, the researchers lie to them. And they make up some nonsense reason where they're putting a blindfold on. So they blindfold all the, the, all the kids. And then they, um, they tell them, we're going to rub your left arm with leaves from the lacquer tree. And they're all like, oh, shoot, no, man. Because they know what's happened before, right? They're letting history use them. There's a mantra for that. <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, that mantra happens to be, I use history, but don't permit history to use me. So these kids were letting history use them because they're like, oh, man, you know what they're doing already. You know what they're already doing. They don't know they're doing it, but they're already doing it. I'll talk about that in a second. And then, then the researchers tell them, and on your right forearm, we're going to rub your um, skin with leaves from the elm tree, which, you know, doesn't do jack. <clears throat> now, of course, what they do, unbeknownst to these kids, is they reverse that. So they end up rubbing the left arm with the benign leaves from the elm tree, and then they rub the right arm with the leaves from the poisonous uh, lacquer tree, but the kids don't know that. And guess what happens? In a significant number of them, that's, that's like research talk, significant number. It could be one if the sample size uh, is small enough, but whatever. Uh, a significant number of them uh, actually got the rash on the left arm. In other words, the arm that they thought was being rubbed with the poison, but it wasn't. It's like, if that ever happened with one person, that's all we need to know, like, well, what, how, how, wait, what? How does that occur? So they were in convincedness. That's the state of mind. They were in the knowing, K-N-O-W-I-N-G state, completely convinced that because of what's happened in the past, this is going to happen again, and they're gonna get the damn rash, and they're visualizing getting the rash on their left arm. They don't know they're visualizing it, they're just like complaining, and that complaint in their mind is turning into an image, which is turning into instructions to your biology, to your neurology, <clears throat> and you are instructing your body to activate what's called cellular memory, and they created the damn rash. <whistles> they created a physiological response that, well, shouldn't have happened but actually should have because of the way the imagery works and it works in the other direction you know it works when there's another research experiment that involved pregnant women and they were convinced to believe that they were being given a pill 
that was going to cure them of their nausea and vomiting. And, they, <clears throat> you know, and of course, they, they, they filled the pill with Cirabipacac. So they spent like two weeks convincing these women with diagrams and all, this, all images to help fill the mind with imagery of wellness and healing and relief of symptoms and suffering. And so these women were, were doing that for two weeks, like visualizing wellness. Finally, take this pill, which is filled with syrup of Ipecac, which makes you puke. And the women, a significant number of them became symptom-free. So this, these doctors, they gave them syrup of Ipecac. The women were already throwing up. So not after they, were, after they took this pill, not only did they get rid of the symptoms they had in the first place, they nullified the action of a powerful vomit-inducing drug, syrup of Ipecac, because of what? Their belief, which turned into what? Images, which turned into what? Instructions to the body to change. And this doesn't just apply to physiology, of course. It applies to us being amazing, right? You're going back like, don't, be, don't wait to be great. Visualize. Visualize perfection. One last piece on that. Something that changed my life. Uh, it was time for me to get my internship in grad school, and I was complaining because they give me a list. You know, there's like some list of like, like there's like a list. We'll just imagine this is actually Macho's list, but we'll just say it's a list of like here's some here are some good places in town here in, in, in Tempe and Phoenix, where you know you, like mental health agencies where because I was in uh, graduate school for psychology, and where you can go do an internship. But I was like, I don't want to do that. That's, I don't want any, none of those do I want because I already did that for four years as a clinical social worker. I came out here to study the mind so I could become a sports psychologist, right? So I don't want to do any of that. So I'm complaining wizardly, very effectively, whining out in the parking lot after class one day with a classmate of mine, Teresa Kowalski. And, um, and I'm whining to her and she said to me, she asked me two amazing questions which changed my life and have changed the way I coach people. And this, I just please store these this is life altering content right here not kidding after she could get in a statement between my complaining breaths <laughs> she says cd um what would perfect look like i'm like what i i, I couldn't even hear the question i was so, I, she's like no like what, you know what would be perfect and i'm like like unrealistically she's like well, you know, I just um, what would be the best case scenario, like the perfect internship for you, man. And I said, well, I mean, like in a perfect world. She goes, that's what I'm asking. And I said, all right, uh, I would work with the men's golf team here at ASU. And, and as soon as I finished that sentence, I, I, would, I, I added to it. But what the hell would they want with a, with a non-contributing zero like me who has none applied minutes of practice? They're the best men's and women's golf teams on the planet. Like, why, you know, what, what they, why would they want me? And she's just like, she's like waiting. Like, God. Uh. So when I've done that rant, she's like, second brilliant question. So first brilliant question, right, was what would perfect look like? Second was, why don't you ask? Long story short, I did ask, and it worked. <laughs> I got the internship, and it changed my life. You know, it became a paid position for the next 10 years. So I did one year as an intern, and I did 10 years as, like, the mental coach, being paid by the university to be the mental coach for these guys. I'll go off on the PGA Tour, and then they're my clients. Fast track to my vocational dream. And it came from answering the question, what does perfect look like? So visualize perfection. And no, just from visualizing, you're not going to stop with imagery. You're not going to stop with visualizing, but you're going to start with it. 
All right, asking yourself the question frequently, getting into the practice of uh, asking yourself throughout the days, well, what would perfect look like here? What would be the best case scenario here? And answer the question for golfers, like standing on. I had, when I was working with these golfers, we'd be out on the course, you know, doing an on-course lesson. And before, you know, they would pick their club and they would get back and we were doing the pre-shot routine. And I'd say, yeah, tell me what, what am I going to see? Like, tell me, what does perfect look like here? And I'd say, just like, what does perfect, what am I going to see? What does perfect look like here? So I'm forcing them then to articulate perfection, which is resulting in them imagining it and increasing the probability of that occurring. Visualize perfection. All right. <clears throat> so there's a session, a mental toughness training session on mantras. Stay tuned for the book. It's going to be tight. <laughs> yeah, I'll be letting you know about it as soon as it's all out. We're just doing the finishing touches now. So use, uh, use the mantras. You know, the mantras are all, it's, if you're not in the daily dose, get the daily dose because the daily dose is loaded up with these mantras and just use them as reminders, right? Just to say them to yourself throughout the day, right? Uh, get above the O-line, living above the O-line. Don't wait to be great. Visualize perfection. The problem is the gift. Ain't bad, just is. There's like jillions of these mantras. All right, folks. Thanks as always for tuning in to Tough Talks. And until we meet again, great miracles. Mm -hmm.